Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Just a Bite series, posted July 22, 2023, titled Christian Reveals Supervillain Secret Origins, featuring Dr. Bart Ehrman, James White Response. So Bart, you are putting out a course as to why I'm not a Christian, but I don't know if you saw this, but a few months ago, Dr. James White made his own video about why you were a Christian. And so this course might be redundant. You may not even need to put it out because James already did it. Do you, do you recall Dr. James White? How could I not recall James White? <laughs> yes, I do. All right. Well, let's maybe fact check his version of your origin story and see if maybe you don't have to put your course out. We'll see. Okay. From my perspective, Dr. Ehrman is a brilliant guy. He's very, very sharp. He rarely gets his facts wrong. It's the context in which he places them and the interpretive grid that he utilizes for them that's the issue. But Bart Ehrman is an apostate. Now that, people hear that term, they're like, oh, you're being mean, you're being mean-spirited. But apostate has a, has a specific meaning to it. You're okay with the term apostate? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely happy with that. <laughs> it's true, I am. <laughs> From his perspective, I absolutely am. Perfect. Uh, Bart Ehrman went to uh, made a profession of faith as a teenager, went to Moody Bible Institute, and then to Wheaton College, and from Wheaton went to Princeton. And somewhere along that line, uh, lost whatever professed faith that he had had. He's given, he's given different reasons for why. His official reason is not problems in the Bible, though he goes back to that a lot. His official published reason is the problem of evil. I didn't know it was an official version. <laughs> I'm not sure what an unofficial you to, You have to register it with the state and everything. It's yeah. So far, so far, so good. <laughs> I know some people who knew Ehrman at Moody, and they have said that they're really surprised because he showed no interest in theology at all. He was rather quiet in all the classes, um, didn't really do all that well, didn't show any interest in, in theological dialogue or things like that. What? <laughs> that just wrong. I don't know. I'd, yeah, I'd like to know who his sources of information were. I was all over theology. I was, my major was Bible theology. I was extremely active in all of my courses. I got straight A's. It wasn't, I wasn't doing well. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I mean, theology was my lifeblood. We had theological discussions that would go till the wee hours of the morning regularly. And I was, oh my God, no, I was a, I was a theological nut. I, you know, Lewis Sperry Schaefer's systematic theology. Theology was my thing. So I don't know what he's talking about. The funny thing is you get these reports, you know, oh, I knew somebody who knew somebody who said, you know, James White knows me. Why doesn't he just ask? <laughs> That'd be too much trouble, I guess. Okay. I yeah, so. I'm getting interested. <laughs> he was Bruce Metzger's last doctoral student before Metzger retired from having doctoral students. He did his PhD. I'm one of the only people on the planet that I know <laughs> that's actually read Bart Ehrman's PhD. Uh, it was on the development of the early proto-Alexandrian text type in one particular Egyptian uh, writer. It was a scholarly work. It was well done. It's very dated. 
and completely outdated, to be perfectly honest with you. And I think Ehrman would probably admit that. So for one thing, it shows he doesn't know much about textual criticism. When he says early proto-Alexandrian, he probably doesn't understand why that's a problematic term. <laughs> My dissertation was related to the Alexandrian text. It's outdated for reasons that I'm certain he wouldn't know why it's outdated. It certainly isn't outdated in the way he thinks it is. But it would take an hour for me to explain the dissertation because it was a highly technical dissertation that Metzger directed. And it had to do with how the history of the text in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, in the first four centuries of Christianity, where I demonstrated that, in fact, the idea of a secondary Alexandrian text is not right. So I don't think that James would know what that means. But And it's too hard to explain. I'm, I'm happy oh, to any time. He or anyone else wants to know what it means. I can explain it at length. Right. It's not true that I read it. It's, still, it's in print, and it's still selling now. I published it as a book with Gordon Fee, who was an evangelical textual critic, who was a friend of mine that we published another. He and I published a book again later. It was the first in the series that he that Fee started in order to begin with my book. God, I wrote the thing in 1985, and it's still selling today. Well, maybe uh, maybe this is an idea for a future course. Talk about the Alexandrian text. Yeah, yeah, right. But the, the point is, uh, he can do sound scholarship. But he has, if, if you step back just a second, you will see there is a scholarly Bart Ehrman, and then there's a popular Bart Ehrman. And unfortunately, the way that you will be impacted and the way your children will be impacted, my daughter was impacted by this, will be by the popular Bart Ehrman, not by the scholarly Bart <laughs> Well, that's absolutely true. Who's going to read a dissertation on the proto-Alexandrian text of the Gospels? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, that, that, that is right. His daughter will not be impacted by my, my work involving collating Alexandrian manuscripts of the New Testament degree. <laughs> I hear this criticism a lot of you when it comes to works for example you have you have the short version of forged and then the longer scholarly version which the accusation is that you make humbler claims in your academic work than you make in your popular work do you think that that is accurate well if somebody said so my two books are forged which was a popular book and forgery and counterforgery uh, it was my long very long scholarly book if anybody can find any contradiction between those two books I would love to know it. Nobody's ever pointed out one to me. And the claims are the same. Paul did not write the pastoral epistles. Paul almost certainly did not write Ephesians, Colossians. And I mean, I know people say this about me, and it's an easy thing to say because you can take a quotation from one book and a quotation from another book and say they're not saying exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. that, that's true. One's scholarly, one's not scholarly. But if anybody knows of a contradiction, I would love to hear it. People say this as well between misquoting Jesus and the orthodox corruption of Scripture. As James himself says, nobody's found any factual errors in any of these popular books. And so I'm not sure what, so maybe he'll tell us what he means. But you'll see the two kinds of Bart Ehrman. And then if you just back up and you look at the topics that he's written on popularly, all of a sudden, it certainly strikes me very clearly. He has for many, many years now been providing an apologetic for his apostasy. That is, it's his intention to provide the broadest, deepest foundation for unbelief. Because that's what he's done. He has become an unbeliever. And so he starts off with questioning um, the transmission of the text. And then he, and the next book will be the authorship. Then he did a whole book on memory. And so you, you, what you're seeing is this very planned out um, attack 
on the foundations. Is this culminating the work of a planned attack? Oh, I never thought about masterminding my books, but <laughs> maybe that would have been a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, okay, that's interesting. The things that I say in the books that he's referring to, for example, my book Forged or my book Misquoting Jesus or my book Jesus Interrupted, those are things that uh, by and large I learned when I was in seminary at Princeton Theological Seminary, active in the church. I was a pastor of a Baptist church for a year when I held to these views. When I moved to Chapel Hill in 1988, I taught these views as a Christian. I was active in the Episcopal Church here. And so I, it's not true that this is outlining why I became an unbeliever. I held to these views before, while I was a believer. He just can't get his mind around the fact that you can have believers who hold to theological views he doesn't agree with. And on the very things, let's be honest, vast majority of evangelical churches, no one's talking about these things. And we tend to send our young people off into the university system without ever having challenged them and given them solid answers within that context. And they run into some disciple of Bart Ehrman and we're stunned that they're coming back going, well, I'm not really sure we can really believe the Bible, Dad. Um, why should we be stunned? We, we didn't deal with it when we needed to be dealing with it. We thought that when you have teenagers, as long as you provide enough pizza and pop, everything's going to be fine. Well, I think it's true that a lot of evangelicals don't deal with critical issues. And it sounds like what, the way he thinks you should deal with critical issues is deny that they're really much of an issue. I will say, though, that when I was an evangelical, we certainly dealt with all of these things. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, my favorite class was a book that dealt with textual criticism and the formation of the canon and the inspiration of scripture and contradictions and things. We talked about this all the time in order to show why they were problematic. And, you know, at the time I, I went with the evangelical line, I had to be pretty much like White's view is about scripture and about faith. And so the, the reason most people like me have left those ideas is because we've actually done the research. I, I mean, I've, I have dozens and dozens of friends who started out as evangelical Christians who then went into the scholarship. They just realized it's just wrong. You know, so it isn't because of my faith that, I mean, I, I came to think this when I was a seminary student training for ministry. <laughs> so it's not, he thinks that if you don't believe in the Bible, you can't be a Christian. And most people seem to think that these days, that's a crazy idea. <laughs> historically, that boy, no way had that idea historically. And so uh, very plainly to me, Bart Ehrman has been living in the light of his denial of his faith uh, for many, many years now. I'm not sure exactly why he does uh, what he does outside of those writing projects being very clearly I don't know if it's a cathartic thing. I don't know if it's the Romans thing that when you're involved in sin, you invite other people to be involved with it with you. I don't know. What? <laughs> the Romans? You said about Romans 1 where people reject God, go off and have, have wild, licentious sex? Is <laughs> that what he has in It's Romans 1.20-ish type things where you're denying well, the truth. And it's clear he doesn't know how I do this. The reason I write books like this is because his form of fundamentalism is very dangerous to society, and it's done very bad things to our culture. And it's because people are being told things that aren't true, and it's led them to social and political views that are dangerous, and to religious views that are just wrong. And so he thinks I've got an ulterior purpose that I want to drag everybody down to hell behind me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not it at all. <laughs> I, the reason, one, one other reason I do this is because I think the New Testament and the early Christianity are the most important cultural features in our society. You don't have to be a, a fundamentalist Christian to be interested in the Bible. 
any more than you've got to be, you know, a Marxist to be interested in economic theory. You know, or my wife teaches Chaucer. She doesn't believe in Chaucer. <laughs> well, why would you teach Chaucer if you're not trying to, you know, show that right. he's right or wrong? Well, because you're interested in Chaucer. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. So are you going on record and saying you didn't apostate just because you want to sin? I'll tell you, when I was leaving the faith, this is something I'll be talking about in my course. So I'm doing this course on why I'm not a Christian. And I'll be talking at some length about one of my greatest fears leaving the faith was that I would, I would have no moral compass. And I was always very concerned about helping other people and being concerned about other people. And I thought, you know, people have told me, if you don't believe in God, you have no reason to be ethical. And, you know, if that's right. What's going to happen to me? And so I, it was just quite completely the opposite. It was one of the things holding me back. But then when I did leave the faith, I realized that, in fact, it doesn't work that way at all. I'm at least as ethical now as I was before. And it's, you know, and, and having faith in God isn't, isn't part of it. Yeah, isn't part of it. So no, I, I did not. I did not. I did not leave the faith so that I could go off and have a wild life. <laughs> well, we both probably failed on that front if that was our goal. But the one thing that I was very struck with in my brief personal interactions with him during the during the debate before the debate, he is not a happy man. Um, he he is he is not a fulfilled man. He does try to give money to uh, charities. I think. There's probably a reason for that. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, well, that's the <laughs> first idea. Yeah. All right. Yes, it is true. I, I try to give money to charity. So people listening to this may know about my blog. I post on my blog five times a week on issues involving New Testament and early Christianity. People pay a small membership fee to join the blog, and I give every dime to charity. I've done that for over 12 years now. We've raised $2 million dollars per charity. I've given every dime of it away. I don't keep a dime for myself. It's just a charity that I run. So that is true. I do that. Why do that? I do that because I don't think that we should just be self-centered, that we should be concerned just about ourselves. I think we need to be concerned about those who are in need and that those who are in need need to be helped. And I believe in helping those who are in need. I'm sure James does that too, although I know nothing about his, his personal life. To say that I'm not a happy man is flipping crazy. I mean, if anybody knows me, I mean, my problem is I laugh too much. I, people on my podcast say, you know, you're laughing too much. You know, yeah, totally uh, folks there. You know, that's all I do. And I feel so uh, fulfilled in my life. I've part of, So this course I'm doing this weekend, Why I'm Not a Christian, I talk about how one can find meaning and purpose in life after leaving the faith. And I will be emphasizing there that I actually feel that my life is more purposeful now, more meaningful now than it was before. And so, yeah, he might be thinking that I'm not happy because I wasn't happy with him. <laughs> I was not happy with him in that debate. I thought that he was rude and mean-spirited, and I didn't. I just didn't like it. You know, I, most of the time I debate uh, evangelicals, I get along great with them, but there are a couple I don't. Yeah, so he maybe thought, maybe thought I was just angry because I was angry at him. <laughs> Could be. And so using material like Apollonius of Tiana is a really easy mechanism to try to take students that have been raised in our churches and separate them from their faith life, hope that because they're now away from home, they're in this libertine environment, that it takes just a few things like that to break the connections and start them on a completely different, different direction. And it is purposeful. Is that your plan for the, for the students you bring in? By using Apollonius and Tiana to make them licentious or make them liberty? What? 
No, look, Apollonius of Tiana, what James is pointing out, I don't know if he, you know, he knew this before, but there are other people from the time of Jesus who were thought to have been miraculously born, who were miracle workers who could heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead, and who had disciples and done brilliant things, and at the end of their lives were uh, taken up into heaven. And Apollonius of Tiana is one of those people. So it's not really a cheap shot to point out that the gospel writers are writing their accounts in a world where this kind of figure was familiar. I don't know what, why that would be a cheap shot or a way to make somebody, you know, to break them away from the faith so they could join their libertine environment. <laughs> Whatever. So a bit of trivia, that entire, if I call it a screed perhaps, about you was the answer to the question about Apollonia Cintiana. That was the question asker asked about Apollonia Cintiana, and he went on oh. your, your entire background based on that question. So that was, he's, he came That's to this gathering with an agenda, I think. Yeah, well, it sounds like he was prepped for, mm. so, you know, it was like a politician. You ask a question, then you talk about what you want to talk about. <laughs> it sounds like that. The other thing that that, that that issue raises is Bart Ehrman is good on historical stuff. He is not good on theology. Um, and it is a problem in our society that if you, if you have letters after your name, somehow that makes you an expert in everything. thought this might be plot calling the kettle black a bit? I wasn't sure. Oh, well, his letters are, you know, where did he get his, he calls himself doctor. I'm not sure where, what his PhD is, actually. It'd be worth looking up. I, yeah, I, don't, up. I don't really get into that kind of thing. Just, PhD from uh, Columbia Evangelical Seminary. Yeah, okay. I don't claim to be an expert in theology, actually. I mean, experts in theology, serious theologians are very impressive people. But the serious theologians that I'm speaking of are people who teach at places like Yale and Chicago and you know, Princeton. They're not people who are teaching at fundamentalist Bible colleges someplace. And I actually, you know, I was fairly expert in fundamentalist theology. I was really all over it for a long time. But real theologians are very serious thinkers. My skeptic audience has trouble believing that because they think, well, you know, how hard can be theology be? Just make stuff up about, up about <laughs> God, right? How hard are they? Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, don't say that, because you, <laughs> that's what you think you don't know. Read Roland Williams sometimes, or, or Stanley Hauerwas, or I, these people are very serious thinkers. They may, you may not agree with them, but they think that James White, these serious theologians think that James White is completely hopeless. I mean, they, in fact, they wouldn't even talk about it, you know, when they're talking about it. They absolutely would never even, they'd probably never heard of him. So, I mean, it's just, real theology is very different from what he's thinking about. Ehrman um, simply will not even acknowledge someone as a historian unless they agree with him that history must be purely naturalistic. You know, he said that to me, well, you're not a historian. You know, it doesn't matter if I teach history, but you're not a historian. And so the, the idea is that real history is naturalistic history. That is, it cannot allow for, it can allow for God to exist. It just cannot allow for God to be active in history. And his whole idea is, well, if God hasn't spoken, then we wouldn't know when God had interfered in history to begin with, and therefore, we simply can't allow that kind of claim uh, to have any kind of impact in our historical conclusions. <laughs> I, I didn't know he claimed to be a historian, but that's news to me. I don't know what, what would make him a, the, a historian. If you think that historians don't have naturalistic presuppositions, if you think that historians allow for the intervention of God in their historical narratives, I'd like James to point out to me 
two or three examples of histories of the Civil War or World War II or the life of Abraham Lincoln or just any historical thing written by a historian, just a regular old historian who's trained in history and teaches, the university, teaches history in the university, that invokes God to explain what happens. Name some historians that do that. You know, I had this debate with Mike Lacona on whether the resurrection happened, this course that I did, where Mike was make, taking the same line. And Mike started citing, he cited about 10 or, I don't know, 12, 8 or 12, I don't know, number of historians that agree with him that presuppositions are a problem doing, when doing history, which, of course, is absolutely true that presuppositions are a problem. But he was using it to say that everybody has presuppositions, and so you can have, you know, just, you can have supernaturalist presuppositions too. So I said, oh, okay, Mike, so let's go down this list, and you tell me which of these have ever published anything in which they invoke supernaturalistic cause for anything that happens in history. And I'd go down the list, does this person know? Does this person know? Does this person know? Does any of them know? So you're quoting people to support your supernaturalist presuppositions who don't share what you share that view. So why are you quoting these historians to me? And the question with James White, if he, if he has historians, like Bono, I'm not talking about people who teach at a fundamentalist Bible college someplace, who you know study church history and think that the Spirit was directing everything. I'm talking about historians who teach in universities or colleges who just publish in historical journals and books with university presses where they invoke the supernatural to explain what happens in history. Well, I'd love to see his list. Yeah. If he doesn't have a list, I'd like him to explain why he doesn't have a list. Well, the result of that is that you are presuppositionally coming to the conclusion that whatever you say about history, you cannot say God had anything to do with it. You can say it's strange. You can say it's weird. You can say we don't know. But the one thing you can't say is that there is any kind of coherent pattern or purpose. No, yeah. historians do have presuppositions. And one presupposition is... I mean, okay, I'm not going to get into this because I've done this in a number of my debates. And, you know, people like him just don't get it because they think, well, that God was active in history. If God was active in history, then you can show that God was active in history. Okay, what's the problem? And so, they, you know, if he doesn't see the problem, he doesn't see the problem. He literally believes that if the Bible was inspired, God would have prohibited any scribe from ever making a mistake in the transmission of the text. And so since scribes made errors, then the Bible can't be inspired. That's just wrong. He yeah. doesn't understand my argument. So I just say, look, if anybody wants to know what I really think, just read my book, Misquoting Jesus. I can see how he would twist it that way, but that is not my argument. And if he does think that's my argument, he either hasn't read it or he doesn't understand it. Stuff, but I expected Ehrman to have a very nuanced, thought-through position. And this is almost childish, and he still holds this position. And I'm sitting here going, exactly how does that work? Okay, I mean, think of it. You're, you're sitting there making a copy of the Gospel of John, okay? And you're about to uh, skip a line. You're about to misspell a word. What's God going to do? Is he going to all of a sudden take you over and start doing automatic writing? Where instead of writing what you were going to write, all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden you go, ooh, where'd that come from? That would require... God to be very much active in history. He'd have to be supernaturally intending everything taking place in history for Bart Ehrman to believe that inspiration had taken place in the past. But the reason he doesn't believe it took place in the past is because of what happened in history. And it's just so obviously this, this vicious tight circle that this brilliant person doesn't seem to see. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm sorry. It just, it just, you know, it's really kind of shocking. But 
So what I'll say is that it takes a while to explain what the argument actually is. I'll just give it in the very simplest form. Sounds good. I do not say that if the Bible were completely inspired, God would have to make sure that scribes did not make mistakes. I do not say that. What I say is, what makes us think that it was inspired, given the fact that all of our copies are so error-ridden? The logic is, if James wants to say that God inspired the Bible, word for word, for example, I imagine he thinks the very words are inspired, then he's saying that God was actively involved and that he did to the authors what he himself, James, is saying God would not do for the scribes, which is keep them from mistakes. So I don't see why it's any bigger of a problem for God to keep a scribe from a mistake than from keeping the author from a mistake. You know what I'm saying? It's an right. So he says it's ridiculous to think that's what would happen. That's what he says did happen with these authors. So that's a contradiction. But apart from that, I'm not saying that God had to keep everything accurate. My question is, why does he think God inspired the words? Now, when I was an evangelical, I thought God inspired the words because he wanted us to have his words. Why else would he inspire them? He wanted us to have them. But if God wanted us to have them, why don't we have them? I'm not saying that it proves that the Bible wasn't inspired. It raises a question. The question is, if God wanted us to have his words, why didn't he preserve them? And if you say, well, because God just let these scribes be humans, that's fine. But then why not take the next step that God allowed the authors to be humans? I mean, what, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk convincing case. It's not like I'm trying to give a logical, like a syllogism or something. Right. This is, I'm just saying that what's probably the case doesn't seem likely to me. And if he seems likely to him, I'd just like him to explain why God did the miracle with the authors, but not with the scribes. By the way, you have, iner- you have virtually inerrant copies of the Hebrew Bible and the Quran. Mm. Is that evidence that God controlled scribes, that they, are, they, they made accurate copies? Humans can make accurate, accurate copies, so why not with the Bible? Makes sense. All right, well, James did go on for quite a bit longer. Those are some of the, the highlights or lowlights as it were. Is that an adequate replacement for your course, do you think? Or, or did, he, did he nail <laughs> Okay, so my course, I am going to talk a little bit. Of my, I'm, so this course is going to be four lectures, about 45 minutes with a long Q&A, where I'm going to talk about why I left the faith, which isn't something that he really got into here. You might later in, the, in this interesting interview. But I do talk about, why, you know, about my conversion itself. And I talk about how committed I was to the evangelical cause. But then I start talking about why I started having doubts about my faith based on my scholarship. My scholarship of the New Testament, my understanding of the manuscripts, but also contradictions in the text and understanding the history, the development of theology and things like that. Why I started having doubts. And then I explain how that didn't lead me to disbelief, but I explain what, what really did in the end. Some of my courses about my conversion more is about what drove me to leave the faith. And a large part of the course is about the difficulties one has leaving the faith, because a lot of people do have doubts and they're afraid to leave the faith and their doubts are legitimate. And I try to talk about those doubts and explain how I dealt with them myself. Unlike James, I'm not really interested in converting anybody or deconverting anybody. I don't mind if people want to be believers. And I'm, I mean, I'm my, my closest friends who are New Testament scholars are all they're all believers, but they agree with me on the New Testament. <laughs> but, you know, people do become unbelievers, and it can be a scary thing. And so I talk about that. I talk about how you can find meaning and purpose, even if you leave the faith and hope and concern for others. And so that's what I'm more interested in than, you know, wrangling with James about these kind of issues that he raises that he thinks I'm just being logically crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once again, as always, so much for your time, and we'll uh, 
hopefully catch you again on a more positive, more intellectual note. Well, you know, Paul, you usually don't present uh, positive interviews for me to interact with. <laughs> but well, it is fun. And I hope people do things like that, of course, because it's going to be, I'm getting into scholarship, but I'm also getting into personal issues about faith and reality and understanding the world and that kind of thing. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. This was a good one. So it was worth doing.